Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. And for our third programme in our series, Spilling the Beans, we're looking at sustainable food systems. In food production, as in so many areas of life, business as usual is no longer an option. Our global population is sustained by fragile food systems that are wreaking havoc with the environment and public health. Food systems not only contribute to and are significantly affected by climate change, but they're also a crucial part of the solution that we need urgently if we are to keep global heating below 1.5 degrees by 2050. With the world's population set to hit 10 billion by 2050, how can we continue to feed ourselves without destroying the planet? As in so many areas of climate change, the answer lies in a combination of innovation, science and common sense. And here to help me understand this are Patrick Holden, founding director of the Sustainable Food Trust, and Patty Fong, programme director for the Climate and Health and Wellbeing at the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. Patty and Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be with you. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you, Amanda. It's also great to be here. Patty, I wonder if I could start with you. Um, the Global Alliance for the Future of Food sounds incredibly ambitious, but also incredibly exciting. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Well, the Global Alliance for the Future of Food is a strategic alliance of philanthropic foundations, and we advocate for food systems transformation globally, whether from financial flows all the way to policymaking. So you're looking at the, when you say financial flows, you're talking about investors or you're talking about governments or all of the above it ranges from philanthropic uh, private sector financial flows public investment all of it needs to be directed or redirected towards um you know more healthier and more sustainable ways of of producing and consuming foods and i guess there's a paradox there, isn't there? Because so often the finance of food and food systems and food production is actually, you know, better served in terms of profit and return by systems which are themselves relatively unsustainable. So I'm thinking about, you know, the cheap food systems, the heavily processed, intensively farmed food systems. So so you're trying to, I guess, shift away from that model, are you? We are, because, you know, as in what we're seeing in, in many other areas, the cost of food is not taking into account what, you know, in economic terms known as, you know, these externalities. What are the impacts that we're seeing on the environment, on livelihoods, um, on health? They're just not being factored into financial models. And I assume also we're not factoring in the climate impact into some of those models either. Exactly. Not the climate impact either. And whether it's the contribution of, of how of our food systems to mitigating the impacts of climate change or to building up resilience and adapting to what we're already seeing is how, you know, basically our uh, climate is impacting how, you know, whether farmers are able to grow a certain, you know, harvest in a certain year, types of crops that they're able to grow, that is all changing as we speak. And I think when people think about that, they possibly think about the impacts of climate change in global terms. So they can see you know, the impacts of droughts in, in Africa. They can see the impacts of flooding in the small island states and things. So people know that there's climate change happening and impacting the way that the land is used and managed you know, internationally. But Patrick, you've been a farmer for, for many years, and I guess you've probably seen the impact of climate change on your own farm, have you? Yes, I think we're witnessing it every year. Here where we farm in West Wales, perhaps we're uh, one of a lucky community where climate change may not 
uh, be entirely negative. But for many farmers throughout the world, I think the combination of um, more extreme weather events, um, more droughts, more very heavy rainfall periods, and the uncertainty of it all is making it very difficult. For us, we've got a dairy herd. We, we're in, we live in a high rainfall area, but even here, we're seeing more extreme weather, really rapid rainfall, which is sort of causing risking flooding, although we're on a hill, so we won't flood, and then extreme long dry periods in the summer. So nobody's immune from this, and we have to adapt and become more resilient. And I think that's the message for every farmer in the world. And just picking up on what Patty said, uh, at the moment, the right thing doesn't pay, or not terribly well anyway, whereas the wrong thing does to pick up on your point. And so the reason why uh, cheap food is as cheap as it is, is because really it's dishonestly priced. When we spend a pound on food in a supermarket, uh, the Sustainable Food Trust did a, a study called The Hidden Costs of UK Food uh, about four years ago now. And the headline conclusion was that when we spend a pound, for every pound we spend, there's another hidden pound uh, which is, doesn't appear on the price tag, split 50-50 between environmental costs such as climate change or degradation of natural capital and pollution and damage to public health. So the farming systems that we have at the moment, which predominate, serve neither the public interest nor the interest of the planet. And as Patty also says, they have to change and change quickly. We probably have only 10 years to make this transition. That's quite a frightening thought, actually, Patrick, isn't it? Because I can imagine that the farm that you run, you've got quite a lot of control over how you're managing your farm, your dairy herd, your livestock, your product. But it's probably coming out at a relatively premium cost, if I can put it like that. Yes. Um, but but if we're looking at a big farm, perhaps an arable farm, um, you know, trying to turn around that kind of change and get a realistic pricing mechanism and a sustainable non planetary damaging system for the food production is going to be a monumental task. It really is. And there's not a, a chief executive of a food company or retailer in the world who isn't thinking about this right now. But I suspect many of them, understandably, are sort of hoping that it'll just be slightly business as usual, a little bit modified. And I don't think that is the case. So you mentioned arable farmers, or it could be farmers in the Midwest of America, who are currently growing monocultures of uh, corn and soy, or in the UK, wheat and barley and perhaps oilseed rape. And they haven't got a proper crop rotation with a fertility building phase. And those farms are going to have to change their systems completely to uh, biologically based systems, uh, mixed farming with multiple enterprises, including probably 50% of the total rotation in grass and clover building soil fertility. And most farmers are simply not prepared for that transition, nor are they able financially to make it pay. So we need an intervention, again, as you were discussing with Patty, from government, from the investment community, and above all, from ourselves as food buyers, because we need to purchase the food products which will come from the sustainable farming systems, which will replace the ones we have at the moment. And just on your point about price, we make cheese, and our cheese is normal, really. I, we, we don't think of it as a premium product. But unfortunately, because of all the things we're discussing, it is, quote, unquote, reassuringly expensive, if you see it that way. <laughs> or to put it another way, it's out of reach of most supermarket buyers. So that's got to change as well. 
And that is central and key to this discussion, isn't it? And it's something that we've touched on in other podcasts as part of Spilling the Beans, but also in some of the wider conversations we've had with farmers and, and food producers over the years. And, and, and Patty, that is part of the real challenge, isn't it? And you're looking at this from a global perspective, but surely ultimately that's what it comes down to is how do we make that transition to affordable food that's sustainable and healthy? That's, that's exactly right. The costs that are being incurred from the current food systems to make it, let's say, low cost, there is an expectation that is low cost, is being born, for example, in the health system. You see, you know, for example, in the UK, the rising rates of obesity. In other countries, you have, you know, other forms of malnutrition, undernutrition, just access to food. So when you're thinking about producing for especially commodity crops for the global market, how finance is being directed is actually siloed. It's really towards, towards maximizing that yield for the global market, but not thinking about, well, what is the actual cost that we're seeing on society? And how are we going to be dealing with some of these, you know, when there are shocks, whether we see from the pandemic, from COVID, whether we're seeing now with um, what's happening in the Ukraine, um, and just the, the, the current global food system is not prepared sufficiently to, to handle that. And it's not just cost, isn't it? It's also those climate impacts, isn't it? And the carbon emissions associated with food. Because, because if we think about it, Patrick's got a dairy herb, but, but I'm sure many of the farms that he knows are producing meat. And, and while meat is an important part of many people's diet, it is actually in sustainable terms and in, in emissions terms, a really unsustainable way of producing food. It consumes a huge amount of land, a huge amount of water, produces quite a high level of emissions. What are you seeing in terms of what the global farming and food production systems are doing around climate emissions? I think as an alliance, you've produced a report, haven't you, on you know the assessment of food systems in what we call nationally determined contributions, which are those contributions that countries have made, those commitments countries have made as a result of COP and the COP process to reducing their, their carbon emissions. How is food and food production and farming fitting into that conversation? Well, short answer, it's not, or it hasn't been to date, which is why we produced this report. We launched it last month, basically to look at the potential for integrating how to deal with food systems and transform our food systems in the context of climate action. So these NDCs, these National Climate Action Plans, these are plans, basically commitments made by countries who have signed up to the Paris Agreement in 2015 uh, to basically limit global warming to well below two degrees. Um, by 2050. And so each country that has signed up has said, okay, we're going to contribute our fair share. And as part of that, they all develop plans. So this is a, a kind of relatively easy top-down way to assess, well, not only what is their overall target for con contributing, but what are the measures, what are their plans in place to do that? So we decided to look at it to identify, well, where are their potential leadership, where are their opportunities, where their, you know, uh, more work can be done to really integrate Food systems. And what we found was actually it's largely untapped. There a lot more needs to be done. And so there is this opportunity for the next round. I mean, this is really confirmed by the IPCC, the Interpanel Government on Climate Change. They produced a report also a couple of weeks ago, which basically said that up to 42% of global greenhouse gas emissions are associated with food systems. And yet policymakers have not really thought about food systems in the context of climate to date. But what we show is that there actually are plenty of opportunities. And in, in many places, there are programs and policies um, which should count towards climate action, but actually haven't been included in the plans. They're just not coordinated across different ministries, things associated with, you know, addressing food loss and waste or with diets and nutrition 
um, as well as addressing agricultural practices. So there are a number of ways which we try to highlight that are really opportunities for countries to significantly increase their ambition level while transforming our food systems to be much healthier and more sustainable. Patrick, at the Sustainable Food Trust, you've been running the trust for a while and sustainability is the heart of what you do. How do you think the UK is faring in our understanding about that interconnectivity and the joined upness of our need to drive down carbon emissions, our need to take action on climate change and our relationship with food and food production? Well, just to pick up on the point that Patty has just made, I think it is absolutely right that policymakers have come very late to the realisation that agriculture uh, needs to be reformed to become part of the solution. But also, a lot of them have got it completely wrong on what the solutions are. And just to give you a very relevant example, the UK Climate Change Committee, uh, chaired by Lord Deben and headed up by a man called Chris Stark, have come out with a strategy for UK agriculture, which we, which we think is pretty comprehensively wrong. I'll pick up on some of the examples. Um, their proposal is that we produce a lot more crops for biofuel, which is 100% wrong. We reforest and rewild as much land as possible. And then we sustainably intensify, which in my opinion is a bit of an oxymoron, on the land that is left. And that is what's called a land sparing policy. In other words, make more room, room for nature by growing more intensively on the best land. Whereas the, the sensible people, this is obviously my, my view I'm expressing, uh, advocate a land sharing policy, which means farming in harmony with nature. And just to pick up on the huge confusion which exists, including within the Climate Change Committee, and the remark you made about livestock. I think there is the heart of the confusion because not all livestock are bad. And I bet you will be surprised to hear this, Amanda. Um, if I was to ask you the question, you've obviously made a commitment to eat less meat and livestock products. But if I asked you which were the least worst, you'd probably say chicken. Whereas in fact, the animals which we need to keep and even have perhaps a few more of, a lot more of in the eastern counties, are ruminant animals, cows and sheep. Uh, and they have been demonized because they produce methane. But actually, they are the only way we can turn the grassland, which constitutes nearly 70% of the UK land area, into food that we can eat. And the methane emissions of those animals are offset by the soil carbon gain. Now, I've said some pretty controversial stuff there, but the essence of it is we need as citizens to be able to differentiate between the animals which are part of the problem, which is all the intensively fed chickens and pigs and dairy cows, and the animals which are absolutely necessary and potentially part of the solution, and shop accordingly. But that is not orthodoxy, as you will know. And I think there is massive confusion out there amongst the public about what to eat to be healthy and sustainable. This episode of Planet Pod is supported by leading international law firm Evershed Sutherland. Yeah, and I, I I I do agree with you actually, Patrick, because because Jim and I were lucky enough to go down to a a farm a, a couple of years ago with a pod where they had slow reared beef. I think twenty four months, I think it was, and they were doing just that. They were were grazing over a large part of water meadow. They were churning up the grass. They were making it, you know sustainable but i think the problem that and i couldn't agree more about the chicken issue as well i mean we, we you know chicken is the is seen as a cheap meat but it's not cheap to produce properly exactly. and and you know there's there's far there's far too much of it 
I guess the problem is that while you're right, and you know, being a big fan of of NEP and rewilding, where they've got free range herds doing just that, you know, helping to manage the land and helping to, to to manage the grasslands. I guess the problem is it's the cost, isn't it? So so raising a herd of slow reared cows to become beef cattle is going to take you a couple of years. And that's going to mean that your profit is a much slower return on your investment. Therefore, your product is much more expensive. And that probably then takes it out of the price range of a lot of people. And if we're saying that meat is part of a balanced diet, whether or not you agree with that, you know, as a meat eater or a non-eater meat eater, there is a problem there about the kind of price point, isn't there? And I think that's the bit that we need to bottom out, isn't it, really? Well, I, you know, respectfully, I, I don't think that's right. Um, I think we have to pay the true cost of all foods that we eat. And the, the root of the problem is, funnily enough, plant foods, because we've only got intensive livestock because we've intensified grain production. And when I was young, in the 50s and 60s, uh, grain was expensive because it was grown in a proper way without all these herbicides and pesticides and chemical fertilizers. So it was too expensive to feed to these um, industrially farmed chickens and pigs and dairy cows. And the meat that was the staple that we ate regularly was grass-fed and mainly grass-fed beef and lamb. That was the cheap meat. And the expensive meat was the chicken, which we had once a month. Now, I think we're going to have to go back to that or forward to that. And it's not actually, you can rear grass-fed beef and lamb and even dairy products in, in harmony with nature at a price which I think will be affordable, especially if the subsidies are redirected and the application of the polluter pays principle. Um, whereas grain-fed meat ought to be really expensive and will become so again, because we're just doing a study. The title of it is Feeding Britain from the Ground Up. And we're looking at the impact of a nationwide transition to sustainable food production by the farmers on output, not just what the yields, but also the ratios of food that will be result from that transition. And I think the results are really important because they will inform the public about what staple foods will be available after this transition takes place. And it will be, just to give you one headline in advance, grain production will reduce by more than 50%. And that will mean that grain will become a hugely more expensive as it is already doing, as Patty mentioned, because of the Ukraine war and the incredible cost of fertilizer, which has quadrupled in the last six months. Patty, you were nodding a bit as Patrick was talking. How does that fit into your global view around some of the work that you've been doing and the idea that we should perhaps eat more cattle and less grain? (laughs) I think it depends on what communities you're talking about. Definitely, you know, there are some societies where there's an overconsumption of meat and where other societies or other countries where actually just access to meat is an issue, right? So it's important not to kind of have a single message around that, to, to really have that nuance. Um, and there's a saying that it's not the cow, it's the how, right? So as Patrick is saying, it's, it is looking at those production practices, whether it's grass-fed versus are they grown on a feedlot? And also addressing not just, let's say, you know, intensification or, uh, as Patrick said, these, these production practices, but, you know, one third of all food that's produced globally is, is either lost before they reach the farm gate or they're wasted. Um, and that is due to the incentive systems of like overproducing some of these commodity crops and they don't make it to the supermarkets because they just don't fit or they don't, you know. So 
I think we really need to be looking at the whole system and what is happening in the system and what is the incentive structure like that is creating this kind of huge amount of waste in the system that is creating this kind of oversupply of certain things and, and undersupply of, of other areas and that we're actually only eating certain food types nowadays globally and that we're come, we've come to expect to be able to eat meat every day, three meals a day in, in, in some countries where, as Patrick said, that wasn't the case not too long ago, depending on how old you are, right? Could be <laughs> maybe we're all very long in the teeth on this podcast. Uh, uh, and so it, it's about how to reposition our perspective about what is kind of balanced, not only on our plate, but in terms of what we have weekly or monthly, what we have, what we have access to now is really a, a privilege that we've come to take for granted, especially in, in, in many societies. And, and I guess it's about balance, isn't it? And the worst way to rear food, if it's, you know, bovine, is to grow huge quantities of grain uh, that could be used for something else to feed to intensively reared cattle. And in Patrick's model, the best way is to have them, you know, on grass, you know, absorbing some of the carbon. And, you know, we haven't done the carbon metrics, so we don't know if a cow's output, if I can put it like that, is totally offset by the amount of grass that's, that's available at pasture. But, you know, at least there's some part of that scenario that works. So that's the best. But for many people, the issue does come back to accessibility, doesn't it? And price. And, and we have to reform that kind of global food chain that means that we are eating, as you said, Patty, maybe different, more variety, you know, perhaps more of the kind of cheaper things to produce that are less water intensive, that are less damaging, you know, different types of pulses, whatever, as well as better, more sustainably produced food and and meat so so that's quite a challenge both for, for producers and for financiers as well as for farmers and and Patrick I'm taken by what you said about this kind of idea of a kind of farming revolution from the ground up I'm assuming that you do feel there is a place for some kind of rewilding and some form of nature base I mean you're an organic farmer so you must have some of that kind of element on your farm as well Yes. Well, you know, speaking of being old, I remember when my dad was training to be a doctor back in the 50s, we spent a very idyllic year um, in a village in Hertfordshire, uh, not far from London, uh, where there was an estate farmed in a traditional way. It was virtually organic. I spent the whole of that year out in the fields and the woods, you know, catching butterflies and collecting birds' eggs, which were legal in those days. And there was an absolute profusion of nature, which was coexisting with food production. And I believe that rather than abandon that, that wonderful balance that was achieved until the onset of chemicals, which really didn't happen big time until the 60s, we need to remember that if we do farm in harmony with nature, a lot of the wildlife would come back by default. Now, on the NEP issue, uh, I'm a great fan of Isabella Tree and Charlie Burrell, and I've been to NEP. And I did a podcast with uh, Isabella quite recently. But I do think that not everyone can rewild their land. And if too many people do rewild, we won't have enough food. And then we'll be, as it were, offshoring food production mm. in other countries. Mm. So mm. I think there's a balance to be struck. But the main issue is to move away from intensive farming right across the world. That's the, the really important thing. And just on the animal point, here's an interesting factoid. At the beginning of the 20th century, we derive 80% of our dietary fats from animals and 20% from plants. Today, it's the opposite. 80% from plants and 20% from animals. But look where the plant fats come from. Palm oil, genetically modified soy, 
avocados to be controversial, uh, etc. Oilseed rape. Those crops are all intensively grown. They're causing enormous environmental damage. And meanwhile, we're not even eating beef fat anymore. It's incinerated. So I do think we need to really review our diets and shop accordingly. And how do we tackle the whole issue of food poverty in that scenario? I mean, because you're talking about a transition that's going to take, what, 10, 20 years if it's accepted and it's taken up and it's given the support that it needs, which is obviously a policy as well as a financial level. How do we manage and support people through food poverty while we make that transition? Well, it's absolutely vital that And it should be every citizen's right to have access to high quality, nutrient dense food. And to the extent where that is not possible or will not be possible after the transition, I believe that's government's responsibilities to intervene, whether it's green food stamps or other forms of safety nets, to make sure that all uh, income groups have access to good quality food. But it is worth remembering that even as late as the 1970s, we spent nearly 30% of our disposable income on food, and now it's about 9% in the UK. So for most of us, we could afford to spend more of our disposable income on food. And by the way, even if we don't think we can, we're probably going to have to. It's a bit like the Ukraine impact on gas prices. You know, who would have thought that natural gas would become so expensive so quickly? Well, don't hold your breath about food prices either. (laughs) Slightly worrying, really, Patrick. Um, Patty, where where have they got it right? You've looked at this globally. You've done your study. There's 14 countries in your most recent report, and none of them have come out terribly well. But are there any good examples that we should be thinking about globally that we can look at and copy some of the, the activities from? Well, you know, some countries are faring better than others in terms of production practices. So countries like um, Colombia, Senegal, uh, Kenya are promoting agroecological practices. The UK is interesting as, as well as the EU in terms of, you know, not that many countries are, are looking at dietary shifts. The UK has its national food strategy. So it was referenced in passing, but it wasn't quite integrated. So that's a really interesting example where there are activities underway or policies or programs underway that just hasn't really been sufficiently integrated with the climate agenda. So I look forward to seeing, for example, the next NDC from the UK to see what changes. But just kind of reflecting back on, on your question to Patrick about affordability. I mean, UK has basically not only high levels of obesity, but 1.3 million children in the UK live under the poverty line, but are not eligible for free school meals. And so there is a campaign that we profiled in our report about from the Food Foundation on the children's right to food. And so really looking at dietary inequalities, access to food, healthier food, they found actually was even those three times as expensive as less healthy food, but most of these households are not getting basically the amount of portions of fruit and vegetables that they need per day. And actually, by trying to reverse that trend, you're creating better infrastructure for those under, you know, living under the poverty line, those with access that they can actually be educated better, you know, do better in school, get better jobs. And so really looking at the bigger system effect of what healthy access to healthier food does for society in that context. So that's just an example where trying to even address the, you know, access to better nutritious food actually has a climate impact as well as a social impact. Absolutely. And I, and I know, Patrick, you've got a campaign, haven't you, at the Sustainable Food Trust around education and around trying to bring some of these issues into the curriculum. 
if we were to put you in front of, you know, the Committee for Climate Change, Patrick, and we have actually had Chris on the podcast, so maybe we'll ask him to come back. You can have a head to head, the two of you. What would you say to him? What is the one or two things that you think we that committee should be taking the messages around and doing differently? Well, just to say, if you want to bring Chris Stark back and put me in front of him with him, I'd so welcome that because, to be honest with you, I don't think the Climate Change Committee, and I'm not, this is not a mean, meant in a rude way, I don't think they understand agriculture. I think uh, they, the UK Climate Change Committee's strategy for UK agriculture does not factor in any soil carbon sequestration, which I think is breathtaking. And there are some reasons for that, partly related to what I said earlier about mm. uh, sustainable intensification. But I also know Lord Deben, and I had a chat with him the other day, and I said to him, by the way, we, we know each other because he, when he was Minister of Agriculture, I was working for the Soil Association. This is probably 30 years ago now, and I reminded him of that. And I said, look, you know, I don't think your Climate Change Committee have got it right on agriculture. And he said, really? He said, you know, I agree with you because I've got a 200-acre livestock farm in Suffolk. And I said, well, we need to talk. And he said, well, I'll put you in front of them and witness the discussion. <laughs> so if you want to get us back on the podcast, I'd welcome that because this is Absolutely. You know, just to make the point. This is not a small point. It's a huge point because what happens to UK agriculture will be a major determinant of whether we get inside planetary boundaries, particularly one and a half degrees. And right now, I think the UK Climate Change Committee has got it comprehensively wrong. Well, there's a challenge. And we'll get on the phone to Chris as soon as this podcast is over and see if we can set that up. And I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, what I guess what I'm taking from this conversation is that we need a a major rethink. We need this thing globally. We need to talk to the politicians and the policymakers and the financiers. And we also need to talk to the farmers. And we need to make sure that we get that conversation going all the way down through, dare I say, the food chain to everybody. So so citizens understand and the role of education is really important in that, but also access to good quality food and the opportunity to, to you know, to, to know what to do with some of those ingredients as well. So, you know, all the, the campaign around teaching young people to eat healthily and to learn to cook and things. So it's a huge, huge issue. And, you know, obviously we've only scratched the surface, but Patrick, that's thank you so much for joining us um, en route from your farm in your car. It's been fantastic to talk to you. And Patty, thank you too, because it's really interesting to get that kind of global perspective um, and help us see these things in context. So my great thanks to, to you both, to Patrick and to Patty for, for being with us today. Thank you, Amanda. It's my pleasure. Mine too. Good, I can hear he's back on the road. Drive safely, Patrick. And and thanks to Beth, our producer, and Jim, our executive producer, and of course to you, the listeners. And do check out the other programmes in this series of Spilling the Beans and also look at some of the other podcasts that we've had because many of the people that Patrick's spoken about we've had on the podcast, so Isabella and, and Chris and various others. But it's been delightful having this podcast today. So thanks to my guests and thanks to you for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to Planet Pod. We'd love to hear from you, so please do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media.